and subsidies to support Foxconn and Bedanta in this deal to base uh, this uh, factory and this uh, uh, production facility in, in Gujarat. Um, the semiconductor market in India will grow like 20% KGAR out to 2026. It'll be like a $64 billion. And what it reflects is this made in India focus. So really building that supply chain more onshore, more domestic manufacturing, particularly in the priority sectors of which semiconductors and display fabrication would certainly be one of them. So it's a good news story. It's a big investment, $19 billion, $9.5 billion over and, and some 100,000 jobs to be created. So this one's got some um, some good positive press over the last couple of days. That's great. Well, have a great weekend, Toby. Thank you very much. That's Toby Lawson, the CEO of Society General India. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Final look at the markets for this week. The ASX 200 in Australia is off three quarters of a percent. Uh, in Japan, the Nikkei 225 is down 1% now. The Cosby in South Korea are off a third of a percent. And futures markets pointing to a loss of about 200 points for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. Have a great weekend. I'll be back on Monday morning at the usual time of 8 o'clock. Coming up after the news is back chats with Janice Wong and Andrew Work. The weather forecast, mainly fine and dry, very hot during the day. Maximum temperature is going to be around 34 degrees and it's going to be persistently very hot and mainly fine in the next couple of days. There is a red fire danger warning in force and also the very hot weather warning. Temperature right now, 30 degrees, 69% relative humidity. It's 8.31. Here's Todd Harding with the Half Hour News. Legislator Chan Su Hung is urging the government to act quickly to prevent a wave of food outlet closures. A catering representative has said that after a three-month rent moratorium ended in July, landlords have been chasing tenants for outstanding payments. Mr Chan told RTHK the government should offer incentives to landlords to defer or reduce rental payments to prevent a domino effect of shops shutting down. I have reminded the government that when the rent grace period ends, many shops may face the risk of being forced to shut down since they would be asked to pay for multiple outstanding rents at once. The government should not rely on the bill and after the bill is cassette, do nothing else. They should do something. And I would urge the government to offer tax cuts for landlords, as an example, who are willing to exempt tenants from immediate payment of overdue rents and to extend its interest-free loan program for the property owners who rely on rent payments. A school bus driver has been hurt by a fallen tree in Homantin this morning. The incident happened at around 7.40 outside Hopyat Church School on Perth Street. Reports say no students were on the school bus when it was struck by the falling tree. The school bus and a private car nearby have been badly damaged. It's not yet known why the tree fell. Firefighters are at the scene cutting the trunk of the tree before removing them. Hong Kong has reported 8,187 new COVID cases, 164 of which were imported. Of approximately 2,800 COVID patients in hospital, 49 are in a critical condition, while six more patients with COVID have died. The former head of the hospital authority and the Centre for Health Protection, Leung Pak Yin, said the crude mortality rate for COVID has fallen to levels similar to those of seasonal flu. The centre's Albert Au, however, said such comparisons can be misleading. He spoke to an interpreter. There is no empirical evidence to suggest that the BA.5, BA.4 substrains in circulation are milder than the previous subvariants. 
So if we only take a snapshot for a certain period of time for comparison, it would be misleading. Because of the various measures adopted by the government, the fatality rate in the fifth wave dropped at one point. That's due to vaccination as well as other anti-epidemic measures introduced. Hence, we cannot compare the severity of the two diseases using a few months as the basis of the period for comparison. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat me, Andrew Work. And me, Janice Wong. Today is September 16th and we are looking at the latest COVID situation after the head of the World Health Organization said the end of the pandemic is in sight. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, the Director General of WHO, said the number of reported deaths from the COVID-19 last week was the lowest since March 2020 and that the world has never been in a better position to end the pandemic. But he again urged nations to maintain their vigilance and to prepare for a future surge in cases. This comes as local authorities said Hong Kong's COVID situation is still critical and stressed that people should not think of COVID-19 like it's a normal flu. Is there a light at the end of the pandemic tunnel or should we be bracing for another winter wave? We'll find out in just a few minutes. At 9.15, we're checking in with a, actually, I mean, in nine at 9 o'clock, we're checking in with a leading hotelier about the hotel quarantine situation. And then we talk to the top rep for the restaurant industry to see how caterers are faring after the end of the government's rent moratorium scheme. Uh, now's the time to share your questions, your comments and opinions on our Facebook page, Backchat at RTHK Radio 3. You can email us at backchat at rthk.hk, and we know some of you love to. Um, or you can call at 2338-8266. And we're getting into it today with Dr. Siddharth Sridhar, uh, regular on the show, is a clinical assistant professor at the Department of Microbiology at HKU. Uh, Dr. Sridhar, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Hey, and we've also got Professor Dale Fisher, who is a senior consultant in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the National University Hospital in Singapore. Uh, Dr. Uh, Professor Fisher is also the chair of the steering committee of the Global Outbreak Alert and Response Network, hosted by the WHO. Uh, Professor Fisher, uh, welcome to the show. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. Hey. So, Professor Fisher, can you maybe give us a little more detail on this announcement that uh, there, there may, in fact, be a light at the end of the tunnel coming from the World Health Organization? Uh, yeah, sure. It's, um, it, it's really just stating the, the, the current position in, in most countries. Uh, obviously, every country is uh, a little bit different, but, uh, but, but you know, in, in most of the world... Uh, life has returned pretty much to normal and and we're in a situation where instead of the sort of um pandemic scenes that we've seen uh we're we're into a much more endemic situation where you've got a um the the virus which which is uh transmitting it's it's circulating through the community but the the numbers are uh, are fairly stable um it's not it's obviously not good. We wish it wasn't there, but uh, but but it is what it is, and it's it, uh, it, it's part of the uh, infectious disease risks that that, that we all face. So it's uh, there, there's going to continue to be fluctuations, and maybe from time to time, for ver- various reasons, there'll be surge surges. But uh, it's just becoming a lot more 
uh, predictable that now, notwithstanding sort of major new variants and things like that. So, so we're, we're entering a different phase. It's it, it's time to um, reinforce our surveillance. It's time to, as he said, build or rebuild or re-establish that community trust, so that if we need. Uh, future actions, uh, especially at a time of surge, that the the community uh, is comfortable with sort of the, the government leadership and decisions, and and also in this time we we can review what happened, but uh, and how we could do better next time. So 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 it's a different phase, uh, as I say, all, albeit uh, different in different countries. But uh, but as a generalisation, uh, I think he's. Uh, Saying, saying what, what, what's happening. All right, Pro- Professor Fisher, um, but what do you think um, Dr. Tedros actually means when he says uh, the end of the pandemic is in sight? I mean, um, does it mean like, like what you just mentioned, that uh, we're just entering a different phase, or, phase, or, or does it mean that um, the virus can uh, be eliminated completely like uh, SARS? No, there, there's no one saying that the, vi- the virus can be eliminated. It's about tra- traversing from from sort of a, a novel virus uh, where the immunity is low, so the ramifications are, are, are worse. Uh, now, again, I, I, I generalise between countries, but, uh, you know, obviously it's quite different in China. But, uh, but uh, no, no, we're in a situation where um, most of, uh, of the world's population has probably been infected, um, uh, very high vaccination rates in, in most countries. Um, so, so we're more resilient to it. It's not that the virus is going anywhere. It's just that the the, the relationship between humans and their immunity uh, in interacting with the virus is a much more stable, um, generally less severe situation now. But but the virus hasn't hasn't uh, changed. It's it's humans and their capacity to to cope with it that has. Right, uh, Dr. Shredar, what uh, what's your take on where, where are we going with this in Hong Kong? I have a comment from our Facebook page from uh, Richard who says, we're as far away from the pandemic as the government wishes. It could be next week, it could be October 17th, it could be November 1st, it could be a year from now. It's got nothing to do with health anymore. Is that your take or what? Where do you, when do you think Hong Kong is going to decide that this is all done? Right. Um, actually, I, I kind of sympathize with that comment. It really is a matter of acknowledging ground reality in Hong Kong. I mean, we have paid the price. We've paid a very hefty price in early 2022 by, uh, you know, nearly uh, 9,000 deaths in one of the worst Omicron waves anywhere in the world. And uh, that gives our population a a, a strong wall of immunity against uh, more severe forms of COVID. On top of that, we have vaccines. So essentially, most people in Hong Kong are either infected, vaccinated, or have some combination of the two. So the conditions in Hong Kong are actually very similar to that in other world cities uh, who actually are now moving into a post-COVID era. Uh, it doesn't take the WHO to well uh, decide when the pandemic is over. I, I mean, if we look around the world, a very simple question we ask is, does life look like what it was back in 2019? And increasingly around the world, that is the case. Uh, Restrictions are light, you know, so there there are uh, uh, very uh, limited things happening in terms of social distancing measures, apart from 
uh, yeah, uh, apart from occasionally asking people to put masks in crowded areas or, uh, or, 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 or during transit. So you can see that most of the world is actually uh, moving on uh, 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 into the post-COVID era. And uh, yeah, as I said, I mean, the situation in Hong Kong is not that different from uh, many other parts of the world. And it is really time that we consider our next steps in moving on from current restrictions. And uh, during um, the uh, virtual press briefing of uh, Dr. Tedros earlier this week, uh, he said that if the world doesn't seize this opportunity to help end the pandemic, we will run the risk of uh, more variants, more deaths, more disruption and more uncertainty. Um, Dr. Strada, is it inevitable that uh, more variants will emerge? 100%. Hundred uh, percent. Virus is always going to mutate. There will always be variants, but the thing is, because most people in the world have either been infected, vaccinated, or both, it gives uh, the human population a considerable resilience against more severe forms of COVID. Because what we have consistently observed is, even if you have a completely new curveball variant like Omicron coming up. The protection against severe disease in those who, who have hybrid immunity, for example, those who are infected, vaccinated uh, in, in that combination, um, basically do have very high levels of protection against severe disease. So I would expect very strongly that this rule also applies to newly emerging SARS-CoV-2 variants. So yeah, for sure, we might keep getting reinfected at regular intervals, just like we do with other respiratory viruses. But the severity of the disease, the extent to which, to which it overwhelms healthcare systems um, should be much, much lower than uh, than before. And we, we're seeing that in Hong Kong now with BA4, BA5, uh, the extent to which ICUs in Hong Kong are uh, coming under pressure is much, much less than our first BA2 wave back in uh, February, March 2022, exactly for that reason, because there are high levels of hybrid immunity in Hong Kong uh, right now. And, and uh, also, um, I noticed that uh, Dr. Tedros uh, from the WHO, he, he also urged our jurisdictions to vaccinate 100% of their high-risk groups, such as the elderly, and uh, keep testing for the virus. Um, Dr. Stridor, would you say that's uh, what Hong Kong has been doing? No, actually, Hong Kong is, is one of the few places in the world where the elderly vaccination rate is uh, is, is the lowest of uh, all age groups uh, that were eligible for vaccination. And we paid the price for that back in February and March. I'm afraid it's uh, still ongoing today because they were slow off the gates. Uh, the, the booster doses, the third dose uh, uptake rates and the 80 plus population is still uh, very low today. So, I mean, we've, it's been one and a half years into the vaccination campaign. I would say the government has done all it can in terms of forcing the elderly to get a vaccine and uh, through, you know, the vaccine pass, etc. I don't think we should mandate vaccines for a specific age groups. That actually, I, I feel that would push a lot of the population away from vaccines entirely. But we've got to refocus our energies again on uh, really hammering home the point that vaccines are crucial for the elderly population. And in fact, we should refocus some of our energies that we're currently spending on childhood COVID vaccination back to the elderly. Because at the end of the day, uh, I mean, the vast proportion of uh, deaths in Hong Kong due to COVID are in the uh, 60 plus age group. So this is, uh, I totally agree with the WHO's assessment that at-risk groups need to be highly vaccinated.
All right. Professor Fisher, uh, what was the situation like in Singapore in terms of uh, vaccination, in terms of the vaccination rate of uh, high risk groups? Oh, we, we experienced the uh, exact same problem as, as Hong Kong and, and China. Um, it was the, uh, the the reluctance to vaccination was highest in the, the, the senior group, um, which was quite different to, to, to the West, where it was the, the younger people that tended to think that there's no point because it's not a severe disease for the, for the young. But uh, we... we uh, when, when we started to open up about a year ago, actually, uh, August uh, 2021, um, this was because vaccination rates were, were very high, but actually uh, in the over 60 group, it was actually the, the lowest. Um, and that was during the, the Delta surge. And that, that was the time of our highest death rate because we had, um, you know, elderly Chinese uh, were, were not, uh, not vaccinated. So that was... Uh, uh, a big surge for us and our, our hospitals were, were very much threatened. Um, what's ended up happening now is most of those people who didn't want to get vaccinated were, were infected anyway. So, again, that's why we've we've gone through that period and uh, and things are sort of much, much more stable now. But, but we, we found um, people uh, didn't want to do it because they had comorbidities, which, of course, is a, the best reason to do it. But they said, oh, I've got heart disease or, oh, I'm old. I'm going to let whatever happen, happen. I'm worried about side effects. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that, that, that was a, a troubling period. We had a lot of um, uh, uh, media, um, you know, well-known television figures coming on and, and doing, uh, doing promotional work. We, we even had teams going door knocking to where we knew there were unvaccinated elderly and, and people would spend half an hour talking to, to people uh, about their, their fears. Um, so, so yeah, as, as was mentioned, we, we did put a lot of effort into that group with, with some success, but... Uh but, but it, was, uh, it was a weakness of ours. So, so that, does, uh, that situation does sound uh, quite uh, similar to, to what we've been experiencing in Hong Kong. What about the situation with um, children? I know, I know at Singapore we'll uh, soon roll out uh, COVID-19 vaccinations for children below five. Uh, what's been the, the reaction to that? I, I think people, um, people quite like it. We're not being as, as, as heavy-handed because obviously it's not... Uh, disease doesn't have the ramifications and there's a lot of sort of mild infections in that group so um but but people that are taking the vaccine are kind of happy that their their children are getting what uh, what everyone else has has had and you know that it's, uh, it's a little bit safer at school and that sort of thing so but but we we don't really hear a lot of it but yes it's available but uh it's not being aggressively pushed. And I understand some jurisdictions like Denmark have taken a very different approach to this, am I right? Where they've said, mm, not not for children? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the decision is much more borderline. It's, it's much more clear cut for, for seniors. So, uh, so you know, I, um, yeah, I, I think it can be a, a bit more discretionary. And the jabs you, uh, Singapore is offering to kids will, will be like a bivalent jab that targets uh, both the original variant and uh, circulating variants. Is that is that correct? Uh, we, we've only just authorised the, uh, the the bivalent one, so that that's just coming in. I'm not sure if the the data is there for children. I'm not. Uh, 
uh, I'd, I'd have to double check that, but, uh, but but it's certainly coming in, and 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 I think it's generally a good thing. We we need better vaccines. We're obviously better off for these vaccines, and the vaccines do do a good job. But if if we could find a vaccine that was better at preventing transmission, then that'd be be good for a number of reasons, not not the least of which is well disease, obviously, but. Uh, but also uh, preventing the emergence of new variants we, if, if we could stop transmission. And uh, what's been the impact of COVID on uh, kids in Singapore? I mean, have, have there been uh, deaths? There's been a very small number. There was uh, one earlier this week uh, in a three-year-old, but uh, there were lots of comorbidities. So it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's very uncommon, uh, but does occasionally happen. I'd certainly recommend it for for children that are immune compromised, you know, transplant children, things like that. But um, uh, your, your, your normal, happy, healthy children, you know, sure, while, while it's available to them, but uh, that they can have it. But the the benefits are less obvious. Just a quick notice here. I got handed uh, a quick notice from the transport department. Take a little little two second break from COVID. Uh, due to fallen trees, all lanes of Perth Street near Princess Margaret Road are closed to traffic. Vehicles on Shengxing Street are prohibited from turning left onto Sheku Street, and from Argyle Street, left turning onto Galane Road. So, just a quick note that we had to get in there. Um, you know, is the data in on different COVID vaccines that were used in different large populations? I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, we heard about, you know, Sputnik V, the Russians were the first out of the gate. The Cubans came up with their own. We don't hear much about these, what I would call alternative vaccines. Um, are they are they struggling more or less with COVID now, or are they pretty much in the same place as, as most other countries? Professor Fisher, you want to take a crack at that? Is the who guy? Sorry, Professor Fisher, do you want to take a crack at that one? Oh, um, yeah, okay. Um, no, I, I don't. Uh, uh, you're right. It's not being spoken about much more. Some some of these aren't, aren't uh, haven't yet had WHO approval, um, so there's still some work to be done there. But uh, but but the data is the data some of them are good and, uh, and and some of them have less of an ad- an advantage but um but but you're right to my knowledge there's a um less data particularly on the uh, on the latest uh um uh variants right and i mean but we don't have any we don't have kind of a clear picture as to whether or not they are faring better or worse than places that maybe adapted some of the more you know like your your uh, your your the, the Pfizer vaccines and the the other ones that were more common in of Western countries. Uh, no, as far as I know, there's no no new data about uh, about those vaccines, particularly in the new variants. But it, it, it all gets very murky when when people have had um, dif- different regimens, uh, different boosters, uh, then infection is thrown in to to you know the the whole hybrid immunity thing. So so it it, it becomes a, a lot more difficult to to tease out the uh, the value. Um, uh, especially, for instance, if you're looking at the Chinese vaccines, and uh, it's very, very difficult to see what's happening in in China with uh, with their concurrent restrictions. Fair enough. I've got an email from one of our uh, regular listeners here. Jonathan Zed asks a uh, question for Dr. Sridhar. I have read that viruses naturally mutate to attenuate over time and end up becoming less deadly in order to survive and infect more people. Is this consistent with your research and or understanding? And is this what we have seen with the COVID-19 virus? From Jonathan. 
sure. Um, th- that's not necessarily true. I, I like to say, you know, viruses aren't uh, malicious beings in the sense that they don't have brains and they don't want to... They, they don't necessarily... All they care about really is spreading from person to person. So they accumulate mutations that generally gives them a benefit of transmission from person to person. If that results in more um, severe disease, it may, but it is not necessarily a primary objective of the virus to do so, right? So when with COVID, what we saw was uh, in 2021, nearly, well, some two years into the uh, pandemic, the second year of the pandemic, we saw the emergence of Delta, which was actually one of the more virulent variants we'd ever had up until that time. So from 2020 to 2021, the virus had actually mutated in a way that basically both increased its transmissibility as well as increased its severity, right? So the severity part of it is uh, something of a random process. But what generally happens is as the virus circulates in a human population, more and more people get infected. And if we vaccinate them, more and more people get vaccinated. And what that does is it gives the human population a level of background immunity against severe disease, which is quite solid. So severity is both an interplay of the inherent virulence of the virus variant, which in some, to some extent is random, but it's also a, a, a function of, uh, you know, how, how, of our immune status against the virus. So if you've been infected, vaccinated, or some combination of that in the past, then uh, basically it, uh, it, it gives us a great deal of protection against severe disease, irrespective of the variant that we're talking about. I've got an email here from Alonzo that, that goes to this. Uh, I'm going to condense this a little bit, Alonzo. Uh, I'm assuming you're listening because uh, it's a lot. It's a lot of math based on his personal experience and samples. But he's basically claiming that a lot of people have not declared their COVID uh, positive status to the government, and he figures that if you uh, now I'm quoting him, if you add the experts' estimates of three to four million infections in the previous wave, that would imply up to six million have been infected in the past two waves alone. And then he goes on to say, Hong Kong must have surely reached a level of herd immunity that allows us to further relax our COVID restrictions. Uh, meanwhile, imported cases remain tiny at under 200 per day, making the current quarantine rules totally unnecessary. Alonzo, if you want to post up the whole thing on our Facebook page, that'd be great. Get all your math in there. Um, but is that a reasonable assumption? Is, is it quite likely that given unreported cases, Hong Kong has probably hit the level of resistance it's going to it's going to meet? And I mean, Perhaps that's borne out from samples taken from sewage. Dr. Sridhar, what do, you, what do you think? Are we there yet? Yeah, I mean, um, it's very difficult to estimate exactly how many people in Hong Kong were infected during the fifth wave. I remember one estimate from the University of Hong Kong as uh, about four and a half million. And I've seen other estimates that are lower than that. But uh, generally, yeah, uh, people have talked about anywhere between 25 to 60 percent of the population having been infected during that terrible wave. But let's not forget that on top of that, we also have a large proportion of the uh, population being vaccinated with at least two doses and in many cases with a third dose. So as I said, yeah, we're, we're, we're in a very formidable position in terms of uh, being similar to other major world cities in terms of our background of uh, protection against most severe forms of COVID, which is all that matters. So yeah, I, 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 you know, I'm sympathetic with that. And I think uh, we are in a position where we can look at further relaxation of uh, social distancing measures. Okay. Hey, Professor Fisher, we're, we're coming up to the close of the hour, but I, you know, there's something that's in my head is, do different cultures have different levels of acceptable mortality 
four different diseases. I mean, uh, once in a while, you'll have a politician in Hong Kong pop up and say, oh, you know, one death is too many, which is ridiculous, because if that was true, we wouldn't have cars. Um, but I mean, does culture play a role in how societies think about how much is too much in terms of illness and fatalities? And, and does it differ from different types of things that kill you? Uh, yeah, I'm probably not the right person to talk about sort of anthropology and, and, and cultural um, uh, approaches, but my, my approach to this would be um, if you've got to measure what is the effectiveness of it and what's the price of it, um, what's the, the social and economic uh, impacts of, of any measure that you're taking, um, and, and actually is it, is it working? Um, of, of course, you know it, it's better to have no deaths. But but if, um, if if the measure, for instance, is causing a, a, a huge problem on on health uh, in, in other for other reasons, then you know if people aren't getting their you know their cancer screening, their breast cancer screening, their colonoscopies, their their, their routine vaccinations, then that that's having an impact somewhere else. So you, you shouldn't be looking at you know a death from COVID, you should be looking at sort of morbidity and mortality overall. And of, and of course, uh, economic impact has a has a health impact. If, if you're losing your business, then that's going to have uh, mental health ramifications, for instance. So, so um, I, I don't think it's, I think it's a little bit too simplistic to just say, oh, someone died of COVID, we, we need to work harder. Um, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's the way it is, uh, and, and I think the argument needs to be couched in terms of uh, effectiveness uh, and cost. Because, as I say, no, none of this is good. It's better if if COVID didn't happen, but uh, but it's how you deal with it that matters. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Professor Dale Fisher, senior consultant of the Division of Infectious Diseases at the National University Hospital in Singapore, also working with the Global Outbreak Alert and Response Network uh, with the World Health Organization, where he is the chair of their steering committee. We are also joined today by Dr. Siddharth Sridhar, clinical assistant professor at the Department of Microbiology. Uh, weather today, fine and dry. Right now, it's 30 degrees Celsius, 67% humidity. We're back on Back Chat. Uh, welcome back with me, Andrew Work, and Janice Wong. Before we uh, pile into the second half of the show, we're still talking about COVID. Uh, I'd like to let people know that uh, you heard in the news there that there's a fallen tree that has uh, blocked up some traffic. All lanes of Perth Street near Princess Margaret Road are closed to traffic. Vehicles on Shengxing Street are prohibited from turning left onto Shekhu Street and from Argyle Street turning left onto Glane Road. So if you're uh, behind the wheel hearing this, uh, please adjust accordingly. So back on COVID, we're talking about hotels with one of the leading hoteliers in Hong Kong. Mel Vastin is the Director of Operations at Hong Kong Ovalo Hotels. Bonjour, Mel Vastin. Seems like today's t apparently today's the deadline for hotels to sign up again, and it seems like a, a number of your industry compatriots are not going to be signing up to be quarantine hotels again. What What is going on right now with hoteliers looking at the situation? That's right. The uh, deadline for the nine cycle is today, 5 p.m. So um, Ovalo South Side and Ovalo Central have, re have uh, yeah, applied already for the nine cycle, and we are committed to support uh, business travelers and hopefully soon leisure traveling uh, coming back to our city. 
and uh, we we support the, the new administration easing the restriction reducing the quarantine uh, one step at a time so we we adapt to the changes and, uh, and continue to to serve our city right and i mean you know with the with the uh quarantine changing from seven days to a three plus four formula um you know how has that changed the way that bookings are are happening in the hotels right now um i understood that during the seven even even though hotels seemed very hard to get a room in i heard that because of flight cancellations or people getting covid before they got on the flight um hotels would have up to a 25 percent vacancy even though it was hard to get places um, you know, complicated by the fact that, you know, you had to book for exactly seven days. You couldn't make up the shortfalls uh, with somebody who couldn't make it. Um, how is it different now? Like, what are, the, what are the bookings like? What are the occupancies like? Okay. So on the 8th of uh, August, uh, the policy has changed from uh, um, seven nights to three nights. And it's true that it has uh, uh, impacted uh, um, our, uh, our demand. So um, we, we observe a drop in occupancy, uh, sometimes by more than 50%. And uh, um, I understand if some hotel uh, has concerned uh, rejoining the, the, the nine cycle. So um, th- there is a changes in the, uh, in the policies. And uh, for the nine cycle, the Department of Health asks us to keep 3% of our room inventory or eight rooms per hotel, whichever is lower for the hotel to cater uh, to those who might arrive uh, or turn positive during their stay. So on this new uh, cycle, people now have the freedom to choose. You know, people should no longer see returning to Hong Kong. This is a step in the right direction. It also shows that the designated quarantine hotel are trusted to, uh, to you know, to handle the quarantine from, uh, from our end. So now the guests can choose from the comfort of our hospitality. You know, we great service, great food and beverage, or if they are, you know, turn positive, they can also go to, uh, to, to CIS. And how does that change your operations now that you are allowed to keep people in your hotel with a COVID positive status? Has that, has that changed how you run the COVID operations in the quarantine hotels? Well, we'll observe the, uh, uh, you know, all the, the protection that are in place, all the policies that are in place. Uh, our uh, team members are, uh, you know, uh, well trained and uh, they are ready for this kind of case. It's it actually happening all the time already that, uh, you know, we have uh, um, people turning positive in our hotel and we have to, uh, uh, so far, uh, you know, uh, deal with that in, in the previous cycle. So now it's just a question of uh, for the guests being able to stay with us uh, instead of being relocated. But uh, there will be not much change except that we'll have to keep that, uh, you know, that uh, isolation room or inventory in our, uh, in our books to make sure that uh, uh, we can have uh, uh, people staying uh, with us. So do you expect uh, many of your guests who, uh, who end up, uh, who test positive, will choose to stay at your hotel? Well, yeah, um, we, we believe so. I think, you know, there, there is some uh, stigma on, uh, on uh, uh, the community isolation center where the services are obviously very limited. And uh, if you compare uh, CIF to, uh, to, to, to the service and, 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 and food we deliver at Ovolo, there, there is no comparison. So, um, of course, people will decide to stay uh, and, and, you know, not be divided. And, um, yeah, uh, of course. Um, you know, we are used to uh, 
changes in policy, even during the same cycle. So uh, we are looking forward to know more on the, the coming policies and uh, we'll, uh, we'll, um, we'll be ready and change even during the same cycle. You know, sometimes we have the, uh, we have the changes. So we are getting ready for the ninth cycle now and uh, um, we, we assume that there will be more changes uh, very soon. So uh, <clears throat> I don't think it's going to bring necessarily more business. You know, it really depends on also how many uh, hotels are signing up for this new cycle. Supply and demand are uh, difficult to forecast in this context. And, and, and again, policy may change even during the length of, uh, of this next cycle. So we are very positive and uh, I think we, we can finally see uh, you know, a light at the end of the tunnel after uh, almost three years of pandemic. But still many restrictions are, uh, are in place compared to, uh, to other countries. And uh, we are in fact very far from the business we had back in, uh, back in, in, in 2018. So um, uh, there, there will be some changes, like for reference, um, back, back in 2018, uh, on that year and for the first seven months, we had 36 million visitors in Hong Kong. And this year, for the same seven months, we only have 124,000. So when it comes to uh, being back uh, to, uh, uh, you know, the city we used to be, uh, we, we still have a long way to go. And, uh, you know, two days ago, the World Health Organization reported during a, a, a press conference in, in Geneva that the end of the pandemic was in sight and uh, that the number of cases were at uh, the, the lowest since March 2020. So it's very positive for, uh, for everyone, but we still have a long way to go uh, and a lot of work to be done in Hong Kong. Absolutely. I've got a couple of emails I want to uh, crank through here. Sailor Saki uh, on our Facebook page says, I think we need to end the hotel quarantine now. We, the Hong Kong taxpaying citizens, have been subjected to massive economic losses due to this nonsensical hotel quarantine and travel restrictions, whilst our general health care system has been lacking the investment it needed since 25 years now. That's from Sailor Saki. Uh, I've got another one here that I think we've kind of addressed from Alonzo. Uh, he says on the broader subject of COVID in Hong Kong, I hear that some quarantine hotels are now running at occupancy levels as low as 30 to 40 percent following the adoption of the three plus four policy. Presumably, these hotels will likely not bother to reapply to be included in the quarantine hotel list. Uh, Med, is that what you're hearing from other hoteliers? Are they are they saying that's it? We're done. We're not doing this anymore. Yeah. So. Um, I, I won't speak on, on, on their behalf or, or name any brand, but uh, this, this is a situation. The, the, the occupancy uh, has dropped by uh, yeah, close to 60%. You know, from you, you do the match from seven nights to three, three nights, but with the same number of uh, people returning into Hong Kong. The number of visitors are very limited. The restriction, you know, in place in the city, if you come to the city as a, a leisure traveler, there is no chance for anyone to, to, to go to a restaurant or a bar. So what, what's the point? You know, you will always prefer to go to uh, nearby countries uh, for, for leisure. Mm -hmm. That for business is a little bit different, and we, we hope that the, the demand will confirm over the next few months. You know, uh, we, we are expecting in November a couple of events, and we'll see how we, um, you know, we manage that. And uh, we, we are looking forward to see more arrival, more visitors into Hong Kong. And obviously, it would require the city to, to be more flexible and ease those, uh, those restrictions. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, we're calling these people leisure travelers or tourists, this 124,000 you mentioned. But 
from my, you know, just from my experience, they're not really leisure travelers. There are people that, you know, quite often are coming back to make sure they renew their permanent residence. You know, if they're out for more than three years, they, you know, it, it lapses. So they're like, oh, well, I didn't want to come back at this time given the restrictions, but I kind of had to, to renew my, my uh, permanent residence. Um, what if, have, I, I assume people in your industry are talking about uh, what you are going to do if the government then says, we're going to go to the uh, zero plus seven which has been mooted mm. as the next step, at which point you won't have the quarantine travelers and you probably were still not going to see a lot of tourists coming back. It seems like for the hotel industry, that would be the worst case scenario. Yes, I agree. I think uh, depending on the, on the restriction um, that there is during these seven uh, days uh, where people can go to work, use uh, public transportation, at, at cannot mingle with others, uh, uh, you know, having uh, a, a lunch at the restaurant. So, so people would have to go back to their rooms, hotel rooms, and order, uh, you know, um, um, in-house uh, dining. And it's, uh, it, it's, it's complicated. People cannot, you know, go to bars. And it's, uh, this restriction will not, uh, will not work for uh, tourism, for leisure travelers. So and, and you're right. Uh, it won't be good for uh, for hotels, for uh, for the industry because obviously there would be uh, there would be uh, only uh, so much supply and very little demand. So uh, it, it won't be good for for it for sure. Yeah, I mean it'd be great for Hong Kongers that want to travel because they can just go home and you know obviously the seven's a lot uh, cheaper for them than having to spend three days in a hotel. But I mean it seems like hotels are going to get slaughtered. Okay, we'll, uh, we'll we'll be we'll be on the lookout for that one. Um, I've got an email here. It's a, it's a lengthy one, so I'm going to condense it. Uh, again, if you're if you're going to send us a long email, uh, especially in the days I'm on, you you might want to post it on Facebook if you want the whole thing in there. Uh, but uh, N. Lee was really hoping for something different from the administration, but he's been very disappointed. Uh, he raises uh, three issues of messaging. He uses the word he is flabbergasted. Giving vaccine passes to unvaccinated man- mainlanders. What message does that send to the unvaccinated in Hong Kong? Uh, and he worries about the risk to them. He is concerned about the government not having a vaccination target. He keeps saying it's too low, but they we don't get a message about what the actual target is and the lack of a plan or roadmap to... Uh, open up Hong Kong. Uh, and so he said he finishes by saying it's time for John Lee to show some bravery and lead us with a concrete plan. Get all of Hong Kong on the same page and let's work together to get out of this. Um, I mean, I'm sure, you know, the, the hotel industry has obviously been, been doing their best. Uh, you know, one of the questions that I do have in my mind about people transferring, and I know people have been asking me, um, if you are in a hotel and you get COVID and you decide that you do want to stay, do you stay in the same room or I've heard talk of special floors in the hotel that they might have to move you to another floor, which is designated for COVID positive patients. Is that the case or, or is that not correct? Yes, that's right. So th- there is a couple of things here you mentioned. Is, so first to answer the, the last question is, uh, is yes, there will be allocated um, uh, rooms uh, for the, these uh, isolation. So if people are, um, um, Turn positive, they will have to uh, to go to this uh, de- designated floor. Um, we are waiting for more details on, uh, um, you know, if people can stay together in the same room, on that same room, or if people need to be divided. So I think there will be more uh, um, clarity on, on this point. But they can stay in the hotel, but on allocated uh, allocated room. And uh, again, the, the Department of Health have asked us 
to uh, to allocate three percent of our room inventory or a minimum of eight rooms uh, per hotel. Now the um, the the point on the reverse quarantine, you know, it's uh, it's something that uh, uh, of course can help quarantine business, but uh, uh, we are and if there is also this quarantine of zero plus seven, it, it will impact in one way positively or negatively. Uh, our industry, but uh, we are all in the same, uh, you know, in the in, in the same uh, in the same trouble somehow, and we we don't want uh, uh, so zero plus seven is a step forward in, in the in the right direction for Hong Kong, and it's a step forward for us and for the public to to return to a, a, a normal life. So we are very confident that if they do decide to go on zero plus seven, and we are confident that eventually they will. Uh, uh, overall, will welcome that. It's, oh, right. it's a positive uh, thing for the city. So, and if they decide to use uh, Hong Kong as um, you know middle 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 ground for the uh, reverse quarantine, we'll also be there. But we would prefer, obviously, for the restriction to ease and to get back to normal business. All right. Well, uh, stay. Thank you very much to uh, Matt Vestine, <laughs> Director of Operations at Hong Kong uh, Ovalo Hotels. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. All right, we are moving on to our next guest today. We're talking about restaurants with Simon Wong, President, Federation of Restaurants and Related Trades, a regular on the show. Simon, thank you for joining us again. Thank you. Simon, uh, you know, top of the news story is about potential closing uh, of restaurants. Um, because of the end of this government program, uh, the rent moratorium, did we not see this coming? Did we not know this was going to happen? I mean, it seems to have, it seems to have like taken uh, non-restaurant people by shock, but surely people in your industry, this must have been front of mind. Uh, you know, the situation is getting quite serious. Um, well, last month, uh, August, I tested uh, about. 8,000 uh, restaurants. Um, well, it seems that their uh, business has not been uh, recovering and uh, they, uh, well, uh, they, they don't have the cash flow to pay uh, the previous three months' rent. Um, well, the three months' rent, uh, well, originally is intended to help uh, those, uh, uh, well, the affected industries. Um, to have uh, you know some uh, a breathing um, area for them to you know uh, if they can have the thing uh, covered uh, in the near future, then they will be able to pay the rent. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, uh, because of the uh, pandemic uh, situation and of the distancing measures. Uh, the restaurant industries are not able to uh, get the uh, business uh, during this time. And um, that's why um, there are so many, um, you know, the tenants uh, are being, you know, urged or even, uh, you know, uh, to pay the rent. And uh, however, they are not able to pay the rent because uh, of lack of business and shortage of cash flow. 
Right. So, I mean, uh, you know, I think a lot of people who are not in the industry had the false impression that things were kind of back to normal, so the restaurants should be fine, and they might not appreciate how much debt uh, restaurateurs took on to keep their businesses open, and they are now struggling with that mountain of debt. Do you have any idea how, is there any way to quantify how serious that situation is? Yes, I just said um, in August there are roughly around 8,000 restaurants on the three months' rent. Um, and, well, the, and besides that, they have paid the rent uh, in for August and September. Um, so it's essentially a situation of five months' rent. But uh, as I see that uh, there are some restaurants, uh, before May, uh, they have already not paying um, the rent to the landlord. Uh, There are some records uh, showing that um, few tenants uh, even uh, haven't been paying rent for uh, more than 10 months. Um, In this situation, uh, the landlord, um, you know, Probably they don't have other choices. Uh, instead of letting the uh, tenants to, uh, you know, the operate the business, uh, they would just kick back uh, the premises. And for uh, so this situation, we see that um, already in Hong Kong in the past few months, uh, since the beginning of uh, the fifth wave of COVID. Uh, Thousand six hundred restaurants have already restaurants have already permanently closed. Mm-hmm. And um, at, at this moment, the, uh, well, about uh, 3,000 uh, restaurants are still. Um, you know, at the brink of, uh, uh, you know, losing the business uh, and uh, you know, closing down because uh, they are not able to pay the rent. And come up with some kind of, uh, um, you know, negotiation structure to, uh, you know, uh, how they can, um, you know, settle the payment of the, the rent. Uh, right, Mr. Wong. Mr. Wong. Um, yes. uh, some some people in the uh, some catering sector representative, uh, they they they're calling for a fresh round of wage subsidy scheme from the government. Uh, do you think that would help? Well, you've been um, asking the government to extend the um, uh, delay of the uh, uh, extension of the, the scheme. No, no, it doesn't help. Because uh, uh, there is an extension of uh, further um, for three months rent, then you know this is a cumulative of six months rent. Mr. Wong, uh, I, I, Mr. Wong, I'm, I'm not talking about the uh, the uh, rent scheme. I'm talking about uh, um, how some catering sector representatives they are calling for uh, the government to uh, to introduce a fresh round of a wage subsidy scheme. Oh. Uh, the wage subsidy scheme uh, can, of course, can uh, um, some industries, for example, like K 
catering industry and the retail industry, but um, I don't know and I don't think the government is willing to um, give us a helping hand at this moment. The most important thing is uh, it can lift um, the measures of the um, you know social distancing measures. Um, it will be more important because uh, we need the business. Uh, we don't want uh, to have the help uh, by the government in giving us some uh, subsidies, uh, something like that. Uh, most important thing is we need to do the business. Hmm. Yeah, I've got an email here from uh, James uh, who says uh, he's, he's taking a shot at the industry. He says, will restaurants learn from the pandemic and given support by the government, which is taxpayers' money, be less arrogant and improve the quality of their service? It's incredible that these places which serve overpriced dishes cry poor. Um, that's from James. But, I mean, obviously a lot of restaurants are, are uh, in, a, in a very bad way. I suspect that the ones that James is... Uh, takes issue with are probably not going to survive uh, this wave if they're not getting support from their customers. But it does, I mean, uh, one of the things that's been circulating in my circles is, um, you know, articles about restaurants we have lost in Hong Kong uh, over the past couple of years. And, and I think there is a real sense of a loss of history and culture uh, that people probably didn't know they ascribed so much to restaurants until they were gone. Uh, and it feels like every week we're hearing about a, an iconic Hong Kong restaurant uh, disappearing, some of them which have been around for decades. Uh, I mean, how many more of these can we expect? I mean, you're talking about 8,000 of these. 8,000. Yeah, there's, yes. there's, there's a sense that we are not only losing uh, businesses, which, you know, as part of the process of creative destruction could be replaced by new uh, restaurants, new concepts and things like that. But it does feel like we are losing something in terms of our, our culture and history at the same time. Well, this is very sad. Um, I, uh, well, we saw that um, there are some historical, um, you know, restaurants closed down in the past uh, few months. Um, it, this, this, this is a very sad, actually. Um, they have been in the business for over 50 years or even 100 years. Um, they just cannot uh, stay abroad. Um, you know, uh, during this uh, pandemic uh, situation. And um, since the government is not willing to help, uh, um, well, this, uh, what I call is... Right, you're breaking up a little bit there, Simon. Yes. Hello. And you're back. Yeah, sorry, you were, you, were, you were breaking up. We were losing you a little bit there. The uh, sound quality hasn't been the best today. Um, uh, Simon, you're a restaurateur. What yes. Is, what is the status of your restaurants? Have you had to close any over the past couple of years? Um, well, we also have, well, um, have some very difficult situations. And um, uh, we did close down some of our premises. But uh, the thing is, uh, we are also a supplier of food to, um, you know, the catering industry. Mm -hmm. And if the catering industry is not doing well, we are not doing well. So, um, and uh, we, we are not able to collect uh, the payment from from our our customers or, or from our clients. And it hurts us a lot. Um, the government uh, did not see this point and did not have us on 
Well, I am not the only one who uh, who is the supplier of food uh, for the catering industry. Um, there are so many, or uh, probably two thousand um, wholesalers or distributors in the market. Uh, they are also suffering uh, from uh, lack of uh, shortage of cash flow because uh, the uh, restaurants simply could not pay um, for what they have ordered. Uh, you know, this is a kind of um, uh, structuring situation for us too. Yeah, I mean, I think this is quite often forgotten that uh, I, I know you're the president of the Federation of Restaurants and Related Trades. And I mean, uh, people, I think, sometimes probably forget that the uh, the impact of the restaurant closures ripples out across suppliers uh, in yes. the industry. Yeah, so we've got, to, we've got to keep them in mind as well. Um, so thank you very much for joining us today. Simon Wong, president of the Federation of Restaurants and Related Trades. All right, that's a wrap for your back chat this week. Thanks so much to you, the listener, for calling and getting in touch with us and for listening to the show. Today's show is produced by Yuki Tong, and our sound man today is James. Be sure to tune in Monday for more back chat with Jim Gould and Mike Rouse. Uh, looking at the weather, uh, mainly fine and dry, apart from some haze, uh, persistently very hot over the next couple of days. Uh, maximum temperature of 34 degrees today. Uh, winds and showers midweek next week. Right now, the temperature is 30 degrees Celsius and the humidity is 67%.